0: Because what do you do when you got a, you know, when when you have a PhD specializing in ayahuasca, and it's 1984.
1: Today's episode features an in-depth discussion that Colin and I had with Dennis McKenna, a man whose 50-plus year career is truly a challenge to put succinctly. He's an American ethnopharmacologist, research pharmacognosist, university lecturer, repeated author, nonprofit founder, and advisor.
2: Some listeners may recognize that he's the younger brother of another well-known figure in the psychedelic space, the late Terence McKenna. Others may be more familiar with his work as a founding board member and the director of the Ethnopharmacology Division at the Hepter Research Institute, which is a nonprofit organization concerned with the investigation of the potential therapeutic uses of psychedelic medicines that we've covered in previous episodes.
1: In this episode, we talk about his multifaceted career, touching on everything from mythopoetic, psychedelic adventures in Colombia, through to his PhD in Botanical Sciences and thesis about ayahuasca from the University of British Columbia, as well as his subsequent work in the National Institute of Mental Health and the Department of Neurology at Stanford. We talk about how guided ayahuasca trips in the Sacred Valley evolved into the McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy and discuss both its long-term vision and mission. Afterwards, we probe about his views on the current paradigm around clinical research into psychedelics and their path to market as well as the broader commercialization
2: of the space. We end the episode with his calls to action on reciprocity with indigenous societies, and Dennis shares some details about the McKenna Academy's first mystery school retreat, which features sound meditation in the Sacred Valley.
1: And so Dennis, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Um, This is an episode Colin and I have been looking forward to for quite some time now, and we're really excited to get your perspective um, specifically because of just the the longitudinal nature of your experience and the different periods in the psychedelic renaissance or the, the development of the industry that you've been privy to. So we're we're really excited to have you on. And for the sake of our listeners, we were hoping if you could take us through your background going all the way back, we're patient, we're willing to go down the rabbit holes, but Everything from what first caught your interest in terms of ethno pharmacology or ethnomedicine, how you came to study it across your undergrad, master's, doctorate degrees, your wealth of postdocs, your consulting work, your teaching work. If you could just take our listeners through your story as you'd like it told, I think it would set a good foundation for the rest of our discussion.
0: All right. Well, uh, hmm, that's quite a long story. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, uh yeah, so uh so I you know, as as you know, I'm Terrence McKenna's younger brother and uh and he led me uh, down the Primrose path in a lot of ways. He was four years older than me. And uh so, you know, we we go way back literally to to uh you know our family origins. Uh, but uh you know, I, I, in in the six, I was born in nineteen fifty, right? So the sixties were my teenage years. Uh, you know, and that's that's the time of life when you're questioning everything and sort of discovering who you are and so on. So, uh, you know, and then I had Terence as example, and, and in, in in during that time because he was four years older than me, and so he actually left home. Uh, we grew up in a small town in Colorado, but he left home uh, to finish his junior and senior year in California, mostly because he wanted to be where the action was, and that's definitely where the action was. And uh, uh, so, you know, he went there, and, and after he did his uh, high school, uh, two years, one in in bay area another one in southern california in lancaster california and then he went to berkeley and uh and you know all of this in in sort of quest of uh uh you know wanting to well be at the cutting edge of of everything but particularly i think psychedelics i mean it was very much a ferment at that time the the, the counterculture was in full swing. And uh, uh, we identified with different parts of it. We were curious about psychedelics and really the only psychedelic that was available to most people at that time was LSD. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and our society really didn't know what to do with it at the time, you know, and now, society's become more accustomed, more, you know, accommodated to psychedelics. But at the time, this was seen as a very disruptive social force, and it was, in fact. Uh, And, you know, we were involved in all those things. And and, uh, around this time, toward the end of the 60s, uh, you know, I went to Berkeley in 1967, the summer of love, to spend the summer with my brother, which was pretty crazy. You know, I, I don't, I, I don't know whatever possessed my father to let me go, but you know, he did. And and around that time, 67, 68, uh, we both discovered DMT, and uh, DMT was. Uh, unheard of you know it was very very rare you heard about it but very few people actually knew what it was but terence was good at working the matrix and was able to get dmt and that was really more than lsd what focused us on psychedelics because that seemed like a whole other order of magnitude of just weirdness and strangeness and fascination and we thought no this is more than a psychedelic this is something something different and so that was really the the basis of our fascination with it and then uh you know uh toward the end of the 60s we uh determined that well our experiences of DMT were that uh, it was fascinating and, and literally mind-blowing, but also unsatisfying in the sense that it was so short, you know, and you could come away from it with very little, uh, very little noetic content. You came away from it with the impression that the most significant, most interesting thing in my life just happened to me. I can barely remember it and I can't put it in words, you know? So we thought maybe if we could find a, an orally active form of DMT, it would be prolonged, could spend more time in that place and learn more about it, you know? So that, was, that became a motivation. And then we, we found out about a, uh, an, a, indeed such an orally active form of DMT in a paper that was written by Richard Schultes uh, about the same time talking about this obscure witoto drug called ukuhe, which was prepared from varrola species. And is a tree in the, in the nutmeg family in the Maristocaceae that's used uh, throughout, the, the sap uh, of varrola is full of uh, DMT and fibothoxy DMT. And a lot of tribes use it as a snuff, you know. uh, And but DMT and 5-methoxy DMT are not orally active unless you take them with an MAO inhibitor. And uh, uh, apparently, this oral preparation was—you know—we didn't know at that time. We didn't know anything about MAO inhibitors or any of that, of course now we know that that's the basis of ayahuasca uh, chemistry that ayahuasca is a combination of plants that one of which contains monoamine oxidase inhibitors the other of which contains DMT so it's an orally active preparation but in 1968-69 this wasn't really understood so this article by Richard Schultes about uh, this this drug called Ukuhe came to light uh, somehow uh, and we you know this was like the siren song you know we resonated with said this has got to be it right this has got to be it so we need to get down there and investigate what this is all about so we we determined to go to south america in 1971 we went down there looking for this ukuhe and as it was called and uh you know in our own mythology you know that we were essentially creating this for i mean not in a conscious way but just in the fact of living living it out uh you know we thought of this as the secret uh We were convinced that DMT had some connection to extraterrestrials, that maybe it was extraterrestrial itself, and, you know, that this was a way to connect with that realm. And and so, you know, so we went in search of the secret, you know, and our our trip to La Charrera has been, you know, is a kind of mythopoetic tale and we went looking for the secret to this place called La Chorrera. Why did we go to La Charrera? Well that's where that was the ancestral home of the Witoto and that's why we decided to go there and when we got there uh, it turns out that well we we had met a an anthropologist on the way in at another village who was working with the Witoto and he was quite alarmed that we had showed up, you know, there's no way to send a text or an email. You just, these completely crazy looking hippie people with beads and beards and, you know, all that show up, you know, in the village one day, we were far more colorful than the Witoto. And this guy was like appalled, you know, and he was particularly appalled when we told him that we were there to find Ukuhe, you know, and he said, uh, you know you can't you know you this is like the most secret part of their shamanism you can't just march into this village and start talking about this they'll kill you you know well he was exaggerating a little bit i think but but we said okay yeah we understand we'll be cool doc you know we'll uh, we'll we'll go easy and uh, so he sent us on our way up to the next to La this was which was a four day trek uh, from this village we were in called El Encanto, which interestingly enough means the enchanted. So, you know, right there, you know, we're in mythopoetic territory, you know, but we we went across to uh, the parallel river and ended up at La Chirera. and at La Chirera, the area had been cleared of of deforested around the mission, and uh, there was about two hundred acres of pasture there. And in those in that pasture were the uh, Cebu cattle, the humpbacked white cattle, that happened to be the preferred substrate for Solomy cubensis and it was the rainy season so the mushrooms were everywhere in the pasture and uh you know we knew what they were um we hadn't had any experience with them we had one very brief encounter uh with them on the way in but we had done our homework we knew they were psilocybin mushrooms and we had a very uh, sort of cavalier attitude toward them we uh thought well we thought of them as a recreational drug and we thought you know and, and at that time cannabis was also semi-legal in Colombia so so we brought plenty of that with us and we thought basically you know it will be fun to play around with these while we're waiting for the the real secret to show up waiting to make contact so we could get this ukuhe and then we started eating a lot of mushrooms way too many <laughs> mushrooms on a, on a daily basis and uh, actually substituting it for a good part of our diet because there wasn't a whole lot else to eat you know and so we were in this kind of semi-psychedelicized state all the time and the mushrooms quickly made it clear that they were the real secret you know and the ukuhe kind of got forgotten and all that it didn't really get forgotten but it took long years actually to actually get samples that we could analyze so the mushrooms became the the soup du jour in some ways uh you know we were consuming them and we were getting a lot of downloads from these experiences which were you know getting most peculiar in terms of the idea complexes they were they were uh, sharing with us and you know i don't really want to go into the details of all that but you can you can read about it in my book you know or true hallucinations or my brother's book or the brotherhood of the screaming abyss Uh, but we had that that encounter and that's really that was really a transforming point in our lives in the sense that you know, I mean, I was only twenty when when we went there. Terence was only twenty four, but in a certain sense, I think of our lives as happening pre lacherra and post lacherra. You know everything that 's happened since has been a uh, has has been lived in the shadow of the experiences at La Chirera, which were quite transformative, quite bizarre. And you know, I'm still processing them. I suppose you could say, uh, uh, but that happened, and then we came back, and uh, uh, and and we had kind of a split. Terrence and me uh, had a split in terms of our perspective of what had happened. Not not a fight or anything but just a different uh, a disagreement or or a, a different view and he was uh, he he said well what has happened to us cannot possibly be exchange- be explained by science there is no scientific invest, you know no scientific theory that could account for what happened to us it was mm-hmm. beyond science and i was like well wait a minute let's not be too hasty here. Uh, first of all, we're not scientists, you know, we mm-hmm. may have deluded ourselves, but we were scientists. But in the end, we really weren't scientists. So I came back and I said, we got to learn how to do science before we can dismiss science, you know, and, and so, uh, and Terrence was like, well, it's all a waste of time, you know. Uh, so he went, in the pathway of being like the metaphysician. And I came back determined to uh, get some science under my belt, basically, learn how to do science. So I went back to school. Uh, I was like a junior in undergraduate at that time. I went back to school. I changed my my curriculum toward ethnobotany and chemistry and botany and all that. I'd been studying comparative religions primarily before then and I i changed my, my academic career toward more uh, nuts and bolts kind of biology life sciences and that sort of thing because of the experiences that have happened to us and which we had a, a really a, a biological explanation for which which turned out to be complete bunk but anyway that was that was the platform they were operating from. So, in ten years later, uh, in 1981, I went back to the Amazon to Peru. This time as a graduate student, and uh, my project was to uh, conduct a comparative study of actually of ayahuasca, which to, you know we'd learned about in the meantime, and ukuhe, and uh, because different botanical uh, sources but both orally active tryptamine based uh, psychedelics or hallucinogens so that's became what my what my thesis was about and i ended up doing that at the university of british columbia i got my degree published a couple papers and uh And then I started a series of endless postdocs. You know, I was the longest, you know, because what do you do when you got a, you know, when when you have a PhD specializing in ayahuasca and it's 1984, you know, (laughs) there's there's not a huge job market there. So I got postdocs and one of the, uh, one of the first ones, one of the best ones, I I got a chance to do a postdoc at uh, National Institute of Mental Health uh from 86 to 88 and uh uh and that was that enabled me to continue my career of studying psychedelics which i determined because of our connection to dmt and all that that there was nothing more important that's what i wanted to do so i had that opportunity i i was there two years kind of a departure from my interest in natural psychedelics. It was completely all about neuroscience and, 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 you know, I was studying, uh, I was mapping the distribution of the 5-HT2A receptors in, in rats' brains. You know, and I had, the lab I was in had technology called autoradiography that let you do that, so I spent Couple of years there. And then I went to Stanford for a couple of years, and uh, continued that work. I did some work on MDMA there. All of this in vitro, none of it clinical. Uh, but I learned a lot about receptor binding because that's receptor binding technologies. Because that's that's what we were. That's what the labs did. And so at the end of the my second postdoc at Stanford. Uh, which was about 1990, my supervisor, uh, Steve Perutka, Dr. Perutka uh, said, well, you know, I'm, I'm gonna go work for Genentech and you're, you're not coming and you probably should think about getting a job, a real job. So about that same time, uh, I was contacted by uh, the people that were starting Shaman Pharmaceuticals, which was a startup company in, in Northern California. And the idea of it was ethnobotany driven drug discovery, you know, not such a crazy idea. And they wanted somebody that could uh, set up their their laboratory for looking at uh, CNS active compounds. They were looking basically for analgesics, good analgesics. And so I was fresh off two postdocs and I'd learned all this stuff about receptor binding. So I, I came on board as director of ethnopharmacology there and uh, set up, set up the screening and all that uh, uh, and worked there a couple of years that I was not very happy with the way they were doing things for a number of reasons. So I, I received an offer from Aveda corporation in, in Minneapolis and, and Aveda, as you know, is a cosmetics company. So, mm-hmm. but they were interested in Rainforest ingredients. They wanted to source natural ingredients from the rainforest. And I said, well, I can do that. You know, I'm your man. So they hired me. Uh, I moved to Minnesota and I worked there for about two and a half years. And, And then I realized I was not suited to the corporate world. I could work with corporations, but I... You know, I I couldn't work for a corporation. I was too anti-authoritarian. So I I worked with them for a while. And then uh, I became a kind of an independent consultant to the pharmaceutical industry that brought me to 1999 when my brother got sick, he got diagnosed with uh, glioblastoma and so basically I dropped everything for that year and just devoted my time to being with him and trying to see if there was any way out, uh, any any cure. I mean, I was the scientist of the family. So I was the one pouring through the papers and going on PubMed and, and trying to see what the state of the art was. And, you know, it was then and it still is one of the most, uh, Intractable forms of cancer. The the mortality rate is basically 98%. So Terrence lived less than a year after his diagnosis, and it was a pretty rough year for everybody involved. And after that, when he died, well, I'd been supporting myself as a consultant. So uh uh, you know, when you're a consultant and you're not hustling the next jobs, they disappear. So I was broke and I had no idea what to do after that. And then all of a sudden, kind of like a miracle, well, it wasn't really a miracle, but I was, I was offered a job uh, at the University of Minnesota to teach uh, ethnobotany. and uh, And I took that position. It was kind of a lifeline. And I, I taught ethno, actually, I ended up teaching a course called Ethnopharmacology, another one called Botanical Medicines, and uh, courses in Hawaii uh, every January called uh, Plants and Human Affairs. And uh, I, I taught there for uh, about, well, I really got started around 2001, and, and for 17 years, that's what I was doing. Uh, was teaching there, that was my academic affiliation. I was doing other things as well. You know, I wrote my book and published that in 2012. Just being the brother of Terrence McKenna, I used to get asked to come to conferences and stuff. So I cobbled things together from, you know, different sources, put together enough of an income to survive. And then in 2017, you know, I, I kinda got tired of making eighteen thousand dollars a year and I thought maybe I could do better than that. So I, I left the university and I uh did other things and you know, for the next for the next couple of years and then I, I did a lot of conferences and started doing retreats, ayahuasca retreats in South America. And that became a good part of my income. And uh And then in 2019, uh, my wife and I decided that we better come back to Canada because I'd done my my PhD at UBC, met her there. And so uh, it wasn't too hard to move up here and become a permanent resident. And uh, that's where I'm at now. And um, so I live in British Columbia kind of watch the, uh, the train wreck going on down in the States <laughs> with dismay and amusement, but mostly dismay, and feel like, you know, we got out just in time.
2: <laughs> and, yeah, pretty, pretty good exit, Pat,
0: I'd say. <laughs> yeah, and so here we are.
1: I think versions of this story exist on a variety of different platforms, but I think it's always best when you, you, you let the speaker tell their own story and this is sort of where I, I go against that. And there's a few things I, I, I thought were exciting that I wanted to pick at a little bit or like pull, pull out of your story before we dive into what you're focusing on now. And so the first one I think is, it. I think it speaks to the the multifaceted nature of your career that this is a bit of a footnote. Um, but it it's this notion of the Hefter Research Institute and being the founding board member, and your involvement through that over the last, I guess it's like three decades now. So could you just, for the benefit of our listeners, because we've, we've mentioned Hefter as a funder of some of the research we've covered in previous episodes. If you could give an overview of what they are, your involvement in that, and the degree to which it's shaped any of the work you're doing today.
0: Right, well, yeah, Hefter, uh has been around for a while it uh, it was formed in 1992 i think it was and because uh past associations with some of these people like Dave Nichols, George Greer and so on i was invited to be part of the Hefter Institute and i still am and i uh, you know i was a board member i i never got uh my research funded by Hefter uh but i was in on the meetings that decided, well, first of all, Hefter was, you know, they didn't have any money. They had lots of aspirations. Over time, they have have gotten attention and they've been pretty effective in in moving forward a lot of the psychedelic research, especially with respect to psilocybin, you know, and and the way it's worked out, MAPS has kind of staked out MDMA and Hefter's staked out psilocybin. You know, uh, not that either one claims any ownership of these, but that's just the way it's worked out. You know, MAPS was focused on MDMA and and Hefter was was wanting to focus on psilocybin. So we uh, have played a role in, uh, 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 you know, moving the psilocybin research forward. And uh, you know, you've seen what happened now now uh you know I I'm proud of that because a lot of the work that Hefter funded or partly funded has really helped put the foundations under psilocybin research so that now it's respectable and we're we're seeing all the therapeutic applications that it has. The corporate world is involved, there's a lot of investment and all that. That none of that would have happened if if the basic research hadn't been solid and, and hadn't you know shown that these things are you know they're useful they're they're not as dangerous as they were made out to be and they're much much more useful so I'm happy about that. Um, one thing I should mention in that period that I was teaching at the university, uh, I got a, a grant from uh, an outfit called the Stanley Medical Research Foundation. And they fund schizophrenia research. And uh, they uh, wanted to, uh, I attended a, a conference that they organized with, with a kind of a strange name. It was, no, wait, it wasn't them. It was, it was NIDA, it was the National Institute on Drug Abuse. I attended, that NIDA organized, and the title was "Potential Therapeutic Applications of Illicit Natural uh, Natural Drugs," but illicit natural drugs, right? So I came and I I talked about ayahuasca because ayahuasca was, you know, my area of expertise and all that, and uh, and there was a guy there from this foundation who contacted me later, and he said. Uh, you know, I liked your presentation, and and we're interested in finding new medicines to treat schizophrenia. And we've been working with uh, some Chinese uh, doctors looking at the traditional Chinese pharmacopoeia. And we have nothing going in South America, Would you potentially be interested in submitting a grant to look at some of these Amazonian ethno medicines. And I said, Well, I don't know. Yeah, maybe. And and he said, Well, we did give away $130 million last year uh, to researchers. And I said, Where do I sign? (laughs) But seriously, uh, I was able to uh, write a grant that they that they supported, I didn't get $130 million, but I got half a million dollars. And so what was significant about that for me was it was a chance to get back to Peru and sort of reactivate all the contacts I had, I had originally interfaced, the people I'd originally interfaced with in 1981 as a graduate student. And then subsequently on a couple other trips, all those folks were still in, in their places. So I, I, had a, I had a base, I had uh, you know, a group of researchers, institutions, and so on that were able to respond to this. And so we undertook this project and uh, we did not find the uh, the new cure for schizophrenia. And I don't think anybody expected that we would. I certainly didn't, you know, but what we did find, what we were able to do was reactivate these connections and screen a bunch of plants and, uh, come up with some very interesting leads uh, which still need to be followed up and i, I could send you a link actually there was a short documentary about this research that was done uh, a few years ago called the shaman and the scientist maybe you've seen it maybe you haven't but i'll i'll send you a link to that movie so this was important to me because it was a it was a way to get back into the field and, and renew these connections. And that continues very much to this day. All, and then all of that happened more or less uh, before I started doing retreats in South America, but it was it was a motivation to keep that connection. And then in 2012, I was able to uh, uh, start doing retreats with ayahuasca not in the amazon but actually in the sacred valley and uh, i'm still doing that Uh, yeah and then all that was the basis of setting up the mckenna academy
2: yeah, that's something that I Armin and I really wanted to touch on um, the uh, the McKenna Academy of Natural Philosophy, as you mentioned, the Sacred Valley, and and your work that started with the retreats and what you're working to now. Um, you know, we Armin and myself we've done some some digging and some research on the academy you're you're building. Um, but I think for the sake of our listeners, it'd be really great to hear more about it. I, I know there's multiple departments of it that you're envisioning and what they'll each offer individually. But I think if you could just give our listeners kind of a, a high-level description of what you aim to achieve with the Academy, it'd be, it'd be really interesting. And then we can, uh, you know, explore the different the different offerings and goals thereafter.
0: Well, yeah, the Academy grew out of this impulse to, you know, create a structure around myself that really I didn't have to you know, answer to faculty committees and that kind of thing. And I, I think that we all agree that, you know, if psychedelics are going to be integrated into, into mainstream society, the key to everything is education. So the Academy is, is a place for education, exploration of ideas and, uh, not simply related to psychedelics, but related to psychedelics and plant medicines in, in a broader context, you know, how do they relate to humanities developing an understanding of their place in nature? you know, and, and what is our really our human destiny. And and so it's a, it's a place for wide ranging exploration of ideas related to this. And uh, we have a lot of, and it also, uh, you know, that the idea grew out of my uh, experiences doing these retreats with different groups in the Sacred Valley. I have seen such amazing transformations in people Uh, who have come to our retreats, you know, they come and they may, you know, they they may have specific issues or things that they're dealing with, like depressions or addiction or that sort of thing. Uh, And it's often very helpful to them. We're not claiming that we can cure any of these things. Our retreats are all about psychospiritual development. But people within their own hearts and in their own experiences often get a lesson from those sessions and they go back and it changes their lives, you know, in very good ways. So we wanted to expand on that and 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 you know, my own feeling is that psychedelics are really important for, uh, for all their therapeutic effects, therapeutic potential. I'm very happy to see that being recognized now and, you know, but in a larger context, psychedelics are basically tools for understanding consciousness, you know, and understanding the mind and understanding, uh, you know, uh, our relationship to nature. And, and this is something that we 've lost you know this is a, this is a this is the spiritual crisis of our time, uh, and the reason everything is so out of kilter in terms of how we 're relating to the planet and what what we 're doing to the planet it's it 's a symptom of the unconsciousness or the willful denial essentially of the fact that we 're out of harmony with nature so in the spirit of the of the Mystery Schools, the Mediterranean Mystery Schools, I wanted to create the Academy as a place where all of these things can be looked at and understood. And, and so it, it will be the first psychedelic university in 1500 years, you know, and, and I sometimes say it's the first university where not all the faculty members are human you know <laughs> so we're there and 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 the plant teachers are are you know catalysts to to open people's minds and i've seen so many instances where people uh you know who may not really even think about their relationship to nature or or history or this particular uh Cultural nexus, cultural and, and planetary nexus that we find ourselves in. They come and have these experiences, and their eyes are opened, and they go back with a determined to, determination to to change their lives and change what they can about it. And when you when you do that with with. Uh, I mean, anyone can benefit from it, but some people actually have the ability to, uh, you know, go back and make changes. I mean, because of their position in business or finance or government or education, they're influential people. Those are the people that need to have this experience and, and wake up, this experience of waking up, you know. And, and like that said, I, I don't want to uh, give the impression that, Uh, you know I mean the the academy is not a cult you know (laughs) I mean it's it's more like an anti-cult in in the sense that the the mission is to teach people how to think not help people learn how to think not tell them what to think
3: and they can
0: figure it out you know these are smart people but that's that's the idea and that's why we want to keep it loose in terms of uh you know the scope of ideas that we can talk about, and what we want to do is uh you know propagate this message about symbiosis with the rest of nature coevolution with the plant teachers as a as a catalyst for for waking us up and uh and that's really. That's really the mission um that we're that we're trying to to do,
1: so I'm really happy we we managed to get get the time to talk through the mechanic Academy because it's something that the message really resonated with me and for our listeners' benefit i I'm gonna put the link to the website um in our show notes and you can go take a look. I think just at a high level, we touched on a lot of these departments, but to summarize I think there's this notion of therapeutics that you've mentioned. There's education, which is perhaps first and foremost the priority. There's the retreats, um, as well as this notion of R&D, you know, building on your experience in ethnopharmacology and ethnobotany and so forth, as well as a media piece. But I think, and this is going back, so perhaps it's changed in the last two years, but I, I was listening to an interview you did with Joe Rogan, and in that conversation, you brought up this notion and and I think you related it to the academy or at least your aspirations with what you wanted the academy to be back then. And you mentioned that one of the things you wanted to create was a system or situation that brings specialists together, like across disciplines or even within a discipline. And and so the examples I think you gave were like mathematicians, quantum physicists, even artists. And to have these like collective sessions together and let people share their insights or, or sort of engage in creative problem solving together. And so stepping back, like when I look through the five pillars or the five departments of the academy, this isn't one that's like explicitly obvious to me. And I'm wondering that notion and perhaps more broadly, this notion that like psychedelics can be used for more than like, like medicine, but rather for perhaps like the betterment of the well or for creative problem solving or for just these other notions like could you talk a bit about your feelings around our current paradigm recently being focused on medicine and mental health rather than perhaps some more of these like creative explorations
0: right well i
1: would say yes
0: uh i mean we we include therapeutics as part of our program it's not necessarily the the chief focus of our program, the focus, like you say uh, i don 't know if you 're uh, familiar with the writings of Simon Pyle. yeah, yeah. The psilocybin solution and all that he writes about psilocybin in a very interesting way, and, and my big takeaway from for, from what he writes is that. Psychedelics can be viewed as lenses for looking at nature. They're actually scientific instruments in a certain way. In that altered state of consciousness that lets you step out of your ordinary reference frame, you can look at nature and see aspects of nature that are normally opaque or overlooked is more like it. Because you know what the brain does is, it constructs. You know, you're familiar with the term the default mode network, right? And mm-hmm. okay. the default mode network is the the artificial reality that we construct and inhabit, and so that we can make sense of the world. A lot of what the default mode network is is th- things are filtered out. You know, you get it's not so much that your senses and what's coming in from the external world is a channel it is a channel but it's a restricted channel you know and if you were to blow those restrictions open temporarily a lot more information pours in and you know but it's overwhelming so we should all be happy that these experiences are temporary but while we're having the experiences, we can learn from them, knowing that the, uh, the default mode network will reassert itself, it will come back to equilibrium. I think it's very much like rebooting your computer. But you will take from the experience what you learned in that, in that altered state. And you can, that can help to integrate and inform your worldview afterwards, you know? And so in that sense, uh, uh, in that sense, these psychedelics are learning tools because they pluck you out of your habitual, uh, you know, reality hallucination, I sometimes call it. All of that is demolished temporarily. And you can look at things from a fresh perspective. And that's where real learning, real insight can come from. And that's why I think these psychedelics can be useful for people in different disciplines. I mean, we've already seen this in molecular biology, for example. You know, Kerry Mullis won the Nobel Prize because he's very open. His insights about uh, that led to the discovery of the PCR reaction, for which he won the Nobel Prize. It was all about LSD. Let him get down among the molecules. That's how he expressed it. So they're tremendous learning tools in that respect, and uh, you know, and at the same time, that's at the that's at the root of the therapeutic, uh, the therapeutic modalities as well. That they let you step out of your reference frame and look at your existential situation from a fresh perspective and if you have addiction or PTSD or you know uh, intractable depression all of these things that they're used for just the the ability to step away from that a little bit you're not so involved in it you can look more objectively and that leads to insights and that leads to resolution so so the therapeutic uh, aspect of psychedelics it's also related to this ability to disrupt the default mode network because you know uh, destructive behaviors like addiction is uh, you know you've constructed a a default a default mode network that is not supportive that is that is harmful you know Uh, it's self-destructive so if you can just blow that away build it up from the ground up create a new one, and it, it, it's literally, I think, I, I don't know on the neurophysiological level, but on the experiential level, it is like rebooting your computer, you know? And when you reboot your computer, if you're having trouble, you know, it works better after, after it reestablishes itself. You've gotten rid of some cludge in the system. And I think psychedelics are exactly like that. And then, you know, there's more. there's more to it because, the, uh, you know, the neuroscience uh, now supports the fact that uh, psychedelics foster the creation of new connections, very much, uh, you know, allow, uh, <clears throat> you know, new, new connections to be made during the experience and some of those persist beyond the experience. So you actually can rewire the brain. And uh, a few years ago, this was unheard of. this wasn 't even imagined because we assumed that the brain couldn 't change that there were no such thing as new neurons you were You were born with what you had and gradually lost them over time. Well, we now know that that 's completely incorrect you know, and psychedelics can actually initiate the formation of new connections and even new neurons, so they're you know, I mean, that's tremendously important, I think.
1: I'm happy. I'm happy we got the chance to go through that. And I think it serves as a perfect segue to a bit of a zoom out onto the state of the industry more broadly. I think part of what this discussion raises is the tension between a an access paradigm that depends on you know, FDA approval, clinical trials, and going through the sort of call it the traditional pharmaceutical path as versus the, the type of access that's necessary for the products to be used in this, like as a tool of science way that you're describing. And so I think the question this raises for me and the question I'd like your opinion on specifically is how you feel about the current policy paradigm and perhaps, you know, the work that's being done by like maps on PTSD, organizations like compass on treatment resistant depression. Like, do you think that is sufficient in terms of sort of sparking policy change around these substances? Or do you think there is still something beyond medicinal access that merits exploration?
0: Yeah, I, I don't think it's sufficient. I think it's necessary for this to happen. I think you know because we respect science as a culture, and science is a kind of religion itself. You know, uh, and so if if you can show that psychedelics have therapeutic uh, applications within the context of science you will find receptive ears to that notion where otherwise you may not you know if you can say look these things can be used to treat addictions they can be used to treat uh, intractable depression or OCD or whatever it might be these can really help people, these are effective medicines that a lot of people will say, oh, well, I never thought of it that way, you know, and it's an easier message to get across than these will open up the exploration of consciousness, you know, that's too woo-woo for a lot of people, that sounds like, (laughs) you know, and they're not as receptive to that idea, but that is in fact what's happening, and then as they have their experiences, I think, then then they will, especially if, if you know, I, I've often said, you know, uh, that faith is not required to take a psychedelic. Faith is actually an impediment. What's required is courage. And if skeptics want to have a reasonable and productive conversation about psychedelics, the first thing they have to do is get courage enough to have that experience, whatever it may be. You know, trust themselves enough to smoke the pipe or drink the brew or whatever it is, eat the mushrooms, have the experience. On the other side of that, then we can have a productive conversation. If they say, I, if they wanna discuss the, the topic and they refuse to look at it from within themselves, you can't have a productive conversation it's like okay there's nothing to talk about here you know because we're just talking past each other you know you're you the person that's never had one that's telling me all these you know reservations and doubts that you have and uh, but you have no evidence you know so making this up and you have to trust the process enough, you have to open your mind enough without the psychedelic to get you in front of the psychedelic and then it will do the work. You know, that intense one-on-one interaction between you and whatever these molecules do, whatever they, whatever message message they bring into your brain. So uh, I think the research is a good thing. I think it's not sufficient, you know, because we want the thing that concerns me about the research is that it will be developed under these strict uh, clinical protocols. Uh, You know, the pharmaceutical industry, the regulatory agencies and all that will determine who gets access to psychedelics. And I think that everyone should have access to them if they choose to. And that's where the natural psychedelics and the plant medicines come in. Because You know, uh, another kind of shtick or idea I've been articulating is that, that these relationships with the plant medicines are really a kind of symbiosis. You know, you form a beneficial plant, any kind of relationship, maybe you like the way it tastes, but if it's beneficial that it's a relationship. And so here you have a group of plants that can speak to the, literally speak to the deepest levels of your being. That should be as a fundamental human right. That's why I think the idea of regulating plant medicines is completely uh, misguided, you know? In the first place, we don't have the authority. Who gave us the authority? You know, I mean, we're just one species that inhabits this planet. Where did we get the authority to declare, you know, mushrooms will be illegal, mushrooms will be declared illegitimate? And because you're saying basically they don't have the right to exist, you know, and, and that's not a decision for us to make, you know, let, let nature take care of that. I also don't want to see a situation arise where the connections to the indigenous context that these things come out of historically, culturally, and all that, as people focus on making these things into pharmaceuticals, there's a tendency to sweep all that aside or discount all that. That's the most important part, you know, in in a certain way. You cannot reduce psychedelics to crystals and capsules. You know, you've got to acknowledge that there's a connection, there's a cultural and historic and even co-evolutionary, I would say, connection to these things. So, I don't want to see a situation arise where, you know, uh clinical psychedelic therapies are available to some people, those who can afford it. and you know uh, that insurance will pay for and some poor schmuck over here who wants to go out and pick some mushrooms they should have the right to do that that should not be something that puts them in jail you know uh, and, and so uh, people should people should have the right to form these symbiotic alliances with with any plant or fungus with the caveat that they do it from an informed place. They make informed choices. That's not such a crazy idea.
2: I just wanted to go back to your point about not reducing plant medicines and people's individual access to these two crystals and capsules, like you mentioned, or the, the pharmaceuticalization of ancient indigenous medicines um, and the kind of trappings that come alongside that. I'm curious about your view and your response to the recent wave of investment, entrepreneurship and capital markets activity within the psychedelic space. Um, you know, Canada's previous legalization of cannabis has opened up financial markets to allow for um, psychedelic stocks or shroom stocks, as some people call them, to come into the mainstream um, and start to raise capital and kind of push an inherently capital markets focused angle on to psychedelics. Now, um, it's not my space to say which company is actually doing valuable work or which is increasing access, um, but I'm curious about what your reaction is to this wave of investment and entrepreneurial interest within the space, um, especially within Canada and the the exchanges that we have here.
0: Right. Well, um, um, again, I, I think this is probably inevitable. You know, mm-hmm. as as the research uh, gets known and as the as the therapeutic uh, Potential of these things becomes more widely accepted. We live in a capitalist society, like it or not, so inevitably capitalists are going to see this as a an investment opportunity, and indeed it is i'm not I'm not against that, but what I am what I think that uh, I, I think that they they maybe more than anybody else needs to make the commitment to educate themselves about psychedelics on a personal level you know to try and introduce a moral compass make them aware of of the moral aspects of this and commit to reciprocity you know okay you're going to take a sacred drug that's been the under the stewardship of an Indigenous indigenous society for thousands of years, going to take it into the clinic, going to corporatize it, patent it, open clinics, make buckets of money. How about giving something back to the people that were the stewards of this knowledge, you know, and and make some effort to not necessarily money, you know, I mean, money is one kind, but there are other kind of benefits, you know, commit to, Habitat preservation, commit, commit to, uh, you know, uh, making sure that the culture remains sustainable. Um, different aspects of reciprocity. This should be a test, in, in a sense, for the for the ethical framework in which these companies, uh, in which they operate, you know, and it, it should be a requirement that. I mean if i if i had my druthers if i were able to impose requirements on these on these companies which i'm sure they're thankful that i can't you know Mm -hmm. but if i could i would say okay you know you have to commit to going to a like a 10-day retreat your your top corporate people need to commit to going to a 10-day retreat in South America, or whatever, where you take this medicine, and you talk about your vision in the context of of your experiences, effectively, like I say, invite the medicine to the table as a participant in modulating this dialogue. That, to me, shows a moral commitment and a sincerity that really I think they should be obliged to demonstrate. You know, and, and if you're not. You know, if if the company is not uh, committed to that, then I think it's uh, they should be questioned. They should be pressured to do that. And if they say, well, you know, we're just developing these things, we just want to make a bunch of money. Don't talk to us about all this new age crap, you know, all that stuff. Then uh, that's a reason to run the other way. In other words, it comes with a moral commitment. You know, these are there's no medicine ever like psychedelics that people have tried to uh, bring into mainstream medicine, you know, and and no no medicine has ever threatened the existing structure of mainstream medicine. I mean, you can think of all sorts of therapeutic, uh, you know, targets like cancer and, you know, different kinds of uh, uh, therapeutic targets for which pharmaceutical industry wants to develop medicines. You can't use these medicines in, in the biomedical context without completely transforming the way that mental health care is delivered. Uh, you know, uh, and, and you're talking about the insurance, the revenue model, all of those things have got to be changed if you're going to use these medicines in a way that is truly uh, therapeutic, that benefits people, and you can't leave behind the people that, uh, you know, that have been looking after this and, and caring for this for for so long, you know, psychedelics are at the very deepest core of what makes us human, you know, and, and we have to acknowledge that and we have to create opportunities for reciprocity, however, that might look.
2: know i I think you're very uniquely equipped to to answer that question and i i completely agree with you in terms of the commitments that companies and and entrepreneurs and prospective entrepreneurs who might be listening to this podcast need to make before they venture into this space and so I, i really appreciate that
0: yeah yeah and again so that that's a big area where where the mckenna academy can really help you know we want to be at the center of this we want to be I guess the center is not the right word. We want to be the bridge between corporate science and, and clinical science and all that, and traditional practices. And, and you know, bring people from all, all the stakeholders, be them, bring them together in a way that they can exchange ideas, and more importantly, share experiences. And everyone will come out of that, you know, transformed and better, you know, better, uh, more insightful. So, so you know, uh, I mean, um, if people want to, uh, you know, uh, and many people do, many people already have had these experiences, but if people want to have these experiences, hey, we can help with that you know, and that, that's a role for the academy. We're not the only ones by any means, but we, that's very much uh, in line with uh, with what we see as our mission to bring these different, I don't know what the term is, stakeholders, interest groups or whatever, bring them together, create something synergistic and, and symbiotic.
1: I'm curious because you bring that up now, in the context, like I'd be remiss not to mention that, you know, it's a global pandemic recession, completely unique set of circumstances that we're going through. That's like the context surrounding this call that we're having. And uh, like everything you talk about here, I'm excited. I, I like, I can't wait to see it manifest. And, you know, part of me is actually imagining like physical, like a physical space um, ongoing trips like bringing people to the Amazon basin and to the sacred Valley. And I'm wondering like, to what degree did COVID actually impact your specific plans around the McKenna Academy art? Like context being like our last guest on the podcast was Ronan Levy from field trip health. And they, for example, had set up their first clinic in Toronto, I think about a week before the pandemic really hit its stride in Canada. And, you know, they were forced to close down and they completely pivoted to an online delivery model and I'm wondering, like, is the fact that the Academy is now starting online and focusing on that education sort of a byproduct of these circumstances? Like, when could people expect to be able to do one of these experiences in the Amazon or sort of one of the experiences at the the Academy?
0: I mean, as soon as, as, soon as possible. But yeah, you're right. Uh, the pandemic has really upended a, a lot of these plans. People are not not doing conferences much not doing retreats you know the whole ayahuasca tourism uh infrastructure in in south america is pretty well shut down i'm not sure this is a bad thing you know because there was a need to take a breather and kind of reassess what's going on fortunately the academy has always had uh you know doing things on the web doing virtual things has always been part of the program, has been to develop a, a strong virtual presence. You know, uh, again, the website as an as a educational platform for delivery of information. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we've just been, you know, we've been forced to focus on that. And we've have virtual conferences and and different podcast series and all sorts of things in the works, you know in collaboration often with other groups like MAPS and so on. So we're just focusing on that right now, what we can do online, keeping our fingers crossed and hoping eventually then, you know, uh, and what's crazy about this this virus is nobody can really predict, you know, I, I can't say that my by January 2021, we'll be doing retreats again in South America. I just can't say that. It's looking less and less likely, you know, largely because, you know, because of the failure of leadership of the states. And now the states has essentially become a a petri plate to reinfect the whole world. So when are we gonna get over that? It's very hard to say. In the meantime, we do what we can with virtual, uh, you know, Virtual events, and it is a long-term hope and goal of ours that we will be able to, uh, you know, uh, get a physical location in the Sacred Valley, which is the place we've been working with all along since twenty twelve, and we thought everything was going great. The woman that owns it, that founded it in nineteen ninety five, she wants to sell it. Her son has come into the picture and managed it. We were having conversations about how can we, uh, you know, uh, work out a deal. You know, if assuming we could find investors, and I think we could. It's not a huge amount of money compared to say funding one of these uh one of these startup companies it's not a large amount of money it's significant that you know it's not a 180 million dollars it's more like eight million dollars which is fairly fairly modest uh and then we would have the platform that would continue to be the the physical location but we'd still do all the things on the web that we intend to do well now of course the 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 uh the situation has changed. I, I don't know if you know this place we're talking about. You probably have, and it looks like the acquisition of Wilcatika is not going to be happening right away. But the conversations we are having with uh, with Terry is now. Let's think about a maybe some sort of a partnership where you know we can form a real estate trust or an investment group that would acquire part of the you know that would invest in the tangible asset the physical property and the business model work in partnership with Terry and his mom for the next couple of years with the idea that eventually in that time frame we'd be able to buy them out you know in increments in stages this is where uh you know, I'm not a businessman. So I'm not a very good person to talk to about how you do this. But, you know, uh, we have very good business people and uh, who do know and many of the folks we've talked we're talking to have a lot of experience in business, there's a way to do it, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, so that's what I'm hoping is that we can in 2021, we can start to do retreats there and we can start to manifest this this partnership, you know?
2: Yeah, and definitely a good way to bridge the, the kind of the bookends of whatever the, the pandemic starts to shape up as. And the exactly. things of the physical location, probably an ideal bridge, honestly.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, we have the physical location, we have access to it, but we don't, we have to work around their programs, you know? We don't have it's any say in what goes there, goes on there. And a lot of what goes on there has nothing to do with psychedelics. It was originally a yoga uh, yoga retreat, so we have to fit our programs in and around everything that they do but that 's worked out so far. We did a wonderful uh, retreat in November with them um, our first mystery school retreat where You know, again, we're trying to uh, kind of move away from the traditional ayahuasca retreat format. I mean, we do that, but this retreat was different and uh, it involved, uh, it was a sound, sound therapy retreat in conjunction with psychedelics, with ayahuasca and mushrooms. It was a pretty amazing experience. I'll send you a link, I'll send you a link for the blog on Will and you can look at it. But people were blown away, and I was blown away, you know, by how uh, how successful it was.
1: It's Interesting. And was this like indigenous music, like live music, or was this something more akin to, like I'm thinking there's a company, Wave Paths, that uses music as a psychedelic therapy. I think the founder used to be a researcher at Imperial College.
0: No, it wasn't indigenous music. It was done with a, a very close friend of mine, Alexandre uh, Tanu. Yeah, it was not traditional um, indigenous music. It was it was very much these using these atonal technologies, which can you know using singing bowls and other kinds of things. These this eight this this multi tonal kind of music, which he's very. Uh, uh very experienced in in you know it's the perfect way in some ways to a a perfect vessel i guess you could say in which you can put a psychedelic experience you know i mean music is usually a part of it uh obviously like in the johns hopkins protocols and, and all these clinical protocols there's always a playlist you know they're very Uh, Focused on classical music. And, you know, there's a lot of reasons not to use classical music, you know, which Alexandre would be happy to explain to you at length. And this guy knows everything there is about music and sound and the history of music and the mathematics and the neurophysiology and all this stuff so that the mystery school retreat that we did at Wilka in November was really a combination of sound psychedelic experiences and then a lot of lectures <laughs> you know which he loves to present and he knows a lot so uh it was, it was really quite an interesting, quite an interesting experience. And the people that came really felt they got a great deal out of it, you know? So, um, so, so that's an example of, of something that we wanted to do. That's not traditional exactly, and not entirely clinical, I mean, it doesn't even pretend to be clinical, but it's it's a new model that we're trying to uh, um, create that's uh, sort of true to the notion of the of the idea of a mystery school, that's, that's what the academy is, and what's the mystery? The mystery is anything we want, <laughs> you know, anything that's of interest that we want to explore that we think that people will resonate with and sometimes literally.
1: Ennis, I can't think of a better way to end it. I am acknowledging that we're well over the time we allotted to this conversation and I can't thank you enough for making the time and for sharing your experiences with us and our guests. I genuinely wish you the best of luck because I would love to be a student as soon as possible.
2: And um, hopefully, we can have another follow up episode one day. Maybe we'll, uh, we'll be recording that episode from uh, the Sacred Valley itself, but love to stay in touch. And I know uh, our, our listeners will, will definitely enjoy this episode. So, definitely appreciate you taking the time.
0: I would love that. I would love that. Okay. All right.
2: Sounds good. Thanks, Dennis.
0: Have a great day. Bye bye.